In the rugged and remote Taranaki region of New Zealand runs a Waimeti stream and the isolated Manuka forests, home to the bees that produce some of the most natural, pure Manuka honey in the world. Manuka honey is a great daily immune booster, digestive remedy and an anti-inflammatory. It's also a great alternative to sugar and a powerful ingredient for longevity. Waimeti honey is a high-quality New Zealand Manuka honey now available in Australia at Woolworths right around the country. And even better, every time you buy Waimeti honey, 10% of your purchase goes towards the regeneration of hive numbers to increase the world bee population. More honey, more healing, and more health for humanity. Waimeti honey. Find it now in Woolworths stores right around Australia. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Damien Christoph and Dr. Brett Hill. Hey, Brett. Hey, Damo. What are you working on at the moment, mate? Well, I'm working on a few things, Damo. I'm writing a book, but what I've just finished working on is my Art of Natural Running e-course, ah. and I'm really excited about it. So, you know, I've been going around Australia doing this uh, this live course where I was teaching people how to run naturally, and uh, and what I realised was that I couldn't get around to everybody, uh, and that it was hard to get around to everybody all around Australia, and even outside of Australia, people who wanted to learn about how to run naturally and how to run it more easily, how to make it more fun and how to get less injuries. And so I decided to put it all together into an e-course, which is about five and a half hours worth of video content. Oh, far out. That's unbelievable. Where do people find it? So they can find it at theartofnaturalrunning.com and they'll be able to hear not just from me, but from experts like Danny Dreyer from Chi Running. We've got Kim Morrison. We've got Kelly Starrett from Mobility Ward. And we've even got a guy called The Barefoot Podiatrist, who's my favorite. Good bloke. <laughs> so theartofnaturalrunning.com. Hi, this is Damien Christoph. And this is Brett Hill. Hey, mate. We're, uh, we're joined today by B. Muhammad. And, uh, and I listened to B uh, as I was going for a little jog. And, um, and I was listening to her being interviewed by a friend of hers uh, on a podcast that, um, that really kind of blew my mind and opened my mind to, you know, just what humans are, are doing out there. And she's got a background working in Canberra with the government on very, very important issues, which we'll talk about um, in the actual, you know, interview. But then she realized that there was more that she could be doing because she saw that there was problems associated with um, opioid addiction and, and, and beyond opioid addiction, actually deaths from opioids. And there's some really fascinating mm. stats that we didn't get oh. a chance to talk about in the podcast, which I'd love to talk about in this introduction, if that's okay with you, Brett. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm not really sure fascinating is the right word for these stats. They were scary. Yeah, just downright outrageous Shocking. to hear those numbers said out loud and to realize that they are the reality in this country, in Australia, uh, in our healthcare system, which, you know, we like to tout as being one of the best in the world. And to hear these numbers was just absolutely shocking. Yeah, it really was. Now, Bretto, just off the cuff, how many people have died in the last 10 years from a chiropractic adjustment? Well, don't we, that I'm aware of none. Mm, none, zero. And, um, and there's been, yeah, so there's been no reported deaths from chiropractic adjustments um, in the last 10 years. Now, how many people do you think, Bretto, in Australia are killed by prescribed, not, not, we're not talking heroin here, which is also an opioid, but prescribed opioids? How many people are killed in Australia well, from prescribed opioids? 
well, I know the answer to this demo because we were told it off air and it shocked me. Um, but it was actually, it was over 2,000 if you added up all the different sorts of opioids that were being prescribed. It was over 2,000 per year. 2,100 yeah. people died last year from correctly prescribed opioids um, by their GPs. And, and to, um, to put that in perspective, Damo, when we did the stats in Victoria, we saw that that was greater than the road toll. So, you know, you think about the amount we hear about the road toll in the media, in the news, in the paper, on TV. We hear about the road toll all the time. We keep almost a running tally of it day by day. Yeah. It was more than that. 370, you know, 370 people um, died from opioid addiction um, or opioid-related injuries or death uh, here in, in Victoria. 370 people last year, but the, the road toll was, was less than that. We're aiming to get below 300 but with this mm. opioid addiction crisis, um, which is perpetuated by prescription medication, not just stuff that people bought over the counter. This is prescription medication. So this is stuff mm. that needs to be controlled. And B has been at the forefront of trying to control this. And so she's got a, a, a company, an organization that she set up called Scriptwise, and that's scriptwise.org.au. And so people can go there and get more information about this. And this is information that needs to be shared because it's, unbelievably scary there was a 125 percent increase in death from opioids in regional areas um over the last 12 months which is just unbelievably profound so and it, so just just for another stat to put it into some perspective you know we hear a lot about heroin in australia and how heroin is this big problem these these non-prescribed medications you know these illicit medications or these yeah. illicit drugs i should say yes and the comparison here was that each year you know as we said 2100 people dying of the prescription medications compared to less than 1000 and not saying less than 1000 is a good number it's not uh, but it's less than half of the amount of people we're hearing that are actually dying from the prescribed versions of these medications, less than half. And so, you know, once again, think about how much we hear about that in the media of heroin compared to prescription medications. There's a vast difference there in the way that's reported, in the way that's prioritized, in the way that's dealt with in our healthcare system. Mm. And, and it's just so obvious from this interview that the way we're doing it isn't working. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a few other scary things in there. And I look at um, at a graph that, uh, B actually sent us through and in this graph it actually shows that there's been a reduction in the number of deaths in New South Wales albeit it's still the highest number of deaths associated with pharmaceutical opioid um, prescription. Um, Queensland had the had also seen a decline and up until um, I suppose 2014 they were the, they were in the running for the second highest and but they've literally had a decrease and in Victoria um, has actually continued to have an increase in deaths associated with prescription use. So whilst other other states are recognising this as a big problem and they're seeing a decline, um, Victoria is still um, achieving um, a, a, an increase in opioid deaths, which is a real concern. So this is a real eye-opener, this uh, podcast. It's quite scary. Um, it's very worrying. Um, but there's definitely things that you can do about it. And if you know of somebody who is affected by opioids then it's very very important that they seek help for this they can go to scriptwise.org.au um, they can speak to their gp they can get a new gp if they wanted to um, or if you're uh, affected by uh, opioids or opioid addiction don't suffer in silence it's a really important issue it's a mental right. health problem and a addiction problem so it needs to be dealt with and so make sure you seek help for it
Yeah, absolutely. And so for people listening in, you know, this might sound like a bit of a negative episode. It might sound like a bit of a scary episode. But you know what? It, it's gone past the point where we – this is something that we need to do something about. Listen in because we're going to give you some strategies and some tools and some things you can do about it to help improve this situation. Fantastic. Let's get into it, Bretto. Hi, this is Davian. And this is Brett. Hello, Brett. G'day, mate. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. I'm a little bit disappointed, I have to say, and I know I'm not going to go on too much about this, but uh, I am actually a bit sad. I flew in from the land of the long white cloud um, just last night, turned on my phone to find out that Richmond lost, oh. and uh, and we lost bad to the Eagles. You did, Damo. You did. We won over in China. That was important. But even more important than that, Damo, is the topic of today's conversation. Which is... I know, I know. We've got to get to it. We've got to get to it. It's true. Go. Well, it's all about prescription medications, Damo. It's, it's all about being script-wise, which is a, a really great campaign that's going on in Australia. Hopefully, people have heard about it, um, where we're really focusing on getting people to be more conscious of what medications they're taking, why they're taking those medications, what the side effects of those might be, um, and how they can be really wise about making sure that they know what they're taking, they're taking the right stuff at the right time, um, and not taking stuff they don't need to be taking. So I think it's a really important topic, Damien Christoph. Yes, me too, Brett Hill. Now, the other day I was out for a run, and the reason why we've managed to get B. Mohammed on the uh, on the chat today is because I was listening to her being interviewed by a friend of hers, Mike, um, on another great podcast called uh, Is it Humans with Purpose or Humans? I should actually have done a bit of research on that one, but I'll come back to that. Uh, but I was listening to this great podcast, and, and I was put onto it by another friend of mine, and I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to it. And then I was I – was, blown away because B's done quite a lot of stuff. So we'll get B onto the chat and we'll have a nice little uh, conversation and and, uh, and find out more about it. So welcome to the Wellness Guys, B. Thank you and thanks for having me. B, when I was uh, listening uh, to Mike and you have your little chat the other day, uh, which is probably a few months ago now because it's probably back in April, um, we I was listening and you had done a fair bit of work and your journey into what you're doing right now is quite... Um, you know, it, it's it's a great story. It's a great story. So I'd love it if you could share it because you were working in an area that's, you know, I'll say it, female genital mutilation, which for me was just like, what the heck? Like, does that actually happen in Australia? And then so you're working in that area and then you've moved into this area, which I think is also equally as important. So just tell us a bit about your story, your background. Yeah, sure. So I was um, living in Canberra four years ago. Um working for National Secretariat under the Minister for Women. And I don't know, some of you may or may not remember, there was a four-corner story um, five years ago about how female genital mutilation was happening in Australia. And um, pretty much the very next morning, um, we pretty much had to brief the minister and the next thing we know, the minister had put together a project team to kind of work and advise her on the issue. And two years later, I think kind of seeing everything, you know, happen at Parliament House in terms of legislation and all the departments working together to actually address something that was affecting, I guess, culturally diverse communities in Australia was something that really blew my mind as a kind of youngish 20-something-year-old person. Um, and I guess I really saw the opportunity of how um, change could happen in Australia when, you know, when you get the right people behind you. So for me, I guess I left Canberra when Tony Abbott became our Minister for Women uh, and the project was done anyways. And um, 
I guess kind of looking for the next opportunity of, okay, where can I really, I guess, put in my efforts to create more change. Um, and then this job came out with Scriptwise and I kind of started reading about it because I just didn't believe the fact that, you know, prescription medications was a huge issue. And then I started looking into statistics, um, reading coroner's report. And I guess the more I kind of dug deep into it, I realized how massive of an issue it was. Applied for the job, got it. And um, I have to admit, it's it's probably the best um, thing I've ever done so far in my life. Uh, I think it is such an important topic. You know, I mean, Damien and I are both chiropractors and so we have people come into our practice and we take uh, health histories of people and it never ceases to amaze me that people will come in and you will ask them about what medications they're on and they say, oh, yeah, I've got these pills that I take. Can't remember what they're called. Not sure what they are. Oh, what are they for? Oh, I don't know. The doctor just told me I have to take them. You know, the, the people are, are not even sure what they're taking or what they're for, let alone the side effects and, and how much they should be taking necessarily and, and when they should be stopping taking them. You know, it's it's such an important topic, I think, that we so often just delegate to other people to decide what we should be taking and when we should be taking it without necessarily being wise about it and investing the time to figure out just what we're taking and, and what the effects of that might be. Is, is that what you're finding, B? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, again, not trying to, I guess, sound all deep and meaningful, but, you know, we are. I think the issue with this happening and, and we see the end result of, you know, unfortunately the coroner's report and people dying from multiple, to- you know, toxicity of prescription drugs is the fact that I think as a society now we, we just want the quickest fix you know if we're suffering from pain we just want you know pain medications so that we don't actually feel any pain when really you know I'm, I'm not a health professional but you are meant to feel some sort of pain you know that's how you build tolerance or if you're suffering right, cool. from anxiety or depression you know you just want something that's just going to take it away in the quickest manner and not actually look at I guess strategies to how you could actually address it long term so you know that's pretty much the reason why we're seeing what we're seeing today and the fact that you know, based on last year's statistics, I think out of the total overdose um, drug-related deaths in, in Australia, 73% was prescription drugs and 27 was illicit. So that number is something I throw every single week, you know, no matter who I talk to, just to show how grave of an issue it is in Australia. That's It's quite profound. It's, it's a widespread problem and uh, often we talk about um, – overdose with paracetamol because you know there was a statistic at some point that came out that said that the most highly overdosed over-the-counter drug um you know in australia um, particularly with children was paracetamol it seems to be something that people can buy like tic tacs um that's a shape of a lolly and kids can often take it and uh, and that can be a problem but also parents obviously giving their children these drugs thinking that they're absolutely safe and paracetamol is a different drug with less addiction um problems to opioids but obviously if people are using paracetamol for pain and then that, that doesn't work the next level has always been that you just go to codeine so you can yeah. go and jump on some codeine get some panadine or whatever it is and then you go yeah. from the next level of you know codeine to you know eventually end up on morphine and then the, all of those opioids become addictive and then you need something else and that's the problem really though isn't it B? is where yeah. it's been easy access and so that's what we've tried to stop yeah it's been easy access and i guess Again, you know, we're never trying to put any blame game, but just 
the overprescribing is obviously another issue. You know, I think ultimately, a consumers need to be aware that a lot of these prescription opioids, especially, um, especially the heavier type of opioids like your Endon or your OxyContin, is actually meant to be treating um, cancer patients. You know, that was why they were there in the initial stage when they were actually kind of on the market. But unfortunately, I guess, again, it goes back to our perception of pain has changed so much in the last decade um, that, you know, a lot of people who are suffering from chronic or acute or short-term pain rely really heavily on these opioids. And I think there are, you know, there is great research to show that they're actually not effective in actually treating some of these, you know, chronic pain conditions too. Well, it's a great point. I actually had a lady the other day, and I want to share this little story, um, if you don't mind, Ben. I'd love your comment on it because I'm, I, I didn't tell you this off air because or off the recordings because I wanted to get your reaction because we're trying to we're trying to stem the flow of overprescription, um, and and I know how big your job is. And there's a lot of opposition to it too. I'm sure there'll be a lot of opposition, not only from government um, departments to some extent, but also from the pharmaceutical companies because it's going to affect their bottom line. But that's it. But really, we've got to come back to being patient-centered. And uh, and this is our concern. So I had this lady come in the other day, beautiful lady, so nice. She probably, let's say she's 70-something. She's suffered with um, some... Uh, back pain uh, and neck pain on and off over the last 25 or 30 years and I saw her recently and you know she started getting a bit better but then went to a doctor and he said well let's put you on some um, drugs anyway so I said so what drugs are you on and she said well I take Panadol every day so I'm going to just say the drug name because that's what she takes. Um, yeah. And then uh, I said, okay, and how's that work? She said, well, I, I take the osteo one, the Panadol osteo. And I said, oh, okay. Um, and then she said, um, uh, but it doesn't really work. So I take four of those a day. I said, right. I said, what else do you take? And she said, well, I was then also put on to um, aspirin um, to help, but that doesn't really help. And so I take a couple of those a day, one or two of those a day um, if I feel pain. Uh, but I went back to the doctor and he said that um, I should probably take Nurofen. So I started taking Nurofen as well. And I said, hey, have you stopped any other ones? She goes, no, no, I take Panadol and aspirin and Nurofen. I said, wow, far out, that's quite a lot. She goes, yeah, I know it's a lot but um that wasn't really doing the job so i went back to the doctor and he gave me celebrex and i said are you kidding me like just what recently and she said yeah only like last week and i said he gave you celebrex because celebrex was taken off the market in australia um what was it what five maybe five or six years ago maybe 10 years ago yeah. because it was linked to heart heart attacks and and other you know complications and i said wow i'm really surprised that he did that but anyway are you on anything else and she said yeah he put me on um tramadol um and i've gone wow far out so you're like we're going all the way up i said are you taking all of these at the same time she goes i don't really like to take the celebrex but you know I, i'll take it from time to time if i need to but i said do you take all the others she said yes and i said oh wow and she said yep and then he, he gave me endone the other day and i thought that maybe um it's a little bit too much what do you think <laughs> and and I had to pick myself off off the ground. Like this is one GP going in yeah. and one one patient going to one pharmacy to get all of these pharmaceutical drugs. And for me, 
I think to myself, my gosh, there's been no further imaging done. There's been no workup done. There's been no blood work. There's no yeah. testing to see whether or not the liver's coping with all of this. And this poor lady's beside herself. The next thing for her was that she was going to be prescribed Lyrica. That was the next chat that she had. And, wow. um, and she was beside herself. So it really concerns me because this is at the ground level in the trenches with our patients. Yeah. And this is what we're dealing with. What, how do you ta- yeah. what do you think about that? Look, unfortunately, those stories are very common, you know, for us at the organisation. It, it was something that, you know, I, I'm not saying, okay, that's that's what we hear every day, but unfortunately it is. You know, we 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 hear those stories of people in the older age and, and you know, I guess as Australia is facing an ageing population, managing pain is, is a huge issue and the fact that that's the first point of treatment is obviously something that needs to be done. But just the complete opposite of that, um, uh, even stories that you know, I think within the year that I started working, I got the young, the youngest kind of inquest, coronial inquest into a death that happened um, in a regional part of New South Wales, and it was actually an 18-year-old boy who was given a fentanyl patch after he suffered from a footy injury. So you know, within a year and a half of being, I guess given fentanyl patches to manage his pain, he overdosed. And so, you know, it's it's something that, okay, yes, you can be a person that's elderly and you're trying to manage all this pain, but then you could also, the scary part about this issue is you could be someone as young as this guy when I remember reading through his coroner's inquest that I just couldn't believe how someone as young as 18 could be given such strong fentanyl patches to manage an injury that he suffered from playing footy, you know, and, and to me that was the moment that I just went, the healthcare system has absolutely failed in that sense. Yeah, and, and it's so challenging, B, and we find this very challenging as chiropractors because really when it comes to talking about medications, you know, for us, you know, our registration body and, and our pro would consider this to be outside of our scope of practice. So for us to be able to even have a proper conversation with someone about this can be quite challenging and, and obviously we, we need to refer them back to their GP, who is often the person who referred them, you know, prescribed the stuff in the first place. So, so that can be a little bit yeah. challenging for us. But in terms of wanting to make change, I mean, who do you think holds the burden of responsibility in terms of making change in this area? Is this a government thing like they have with codeine, where they need to change the regulations, um, or is it the healthcare professionals who need to take responsibility for what they're prescribing and when they're prescribing, and in particular when to stop prescribing stuff, um, or is it the yeah. individual who just has to take on the responsibility and has to inform themselves and arm themselves and and not pass over the, the burden of control to those health professionals and authorities? Yeah, I think that's a very important question and it's it's definitely a very hard question to answer. But, you know, from our organisation point of view, I think the biggest gap, you know, the biggest gap is definitely the fact that consumers themselves don't really have that information. You know, I think a lot of the times when we go out to communities, um, you know, we, we actually say, well, some of these prescription opioids are actually known as addictive medications. So it's kind of just the basic of like understanding that these medications contain um, opium is something that the general public was like, what do you mean, you know, they are opiate-based, you know. So sometimes I use the complete extreme example of almost saying, well, it's kind of like heroin in a way. You know, so it's kind of just that basic understanding to make people understand and, and go, okay, well, what actually am I putting to my body and, and do I actually want to 
just do it without finding the background information. And, you know, a lot of families who lost a family member to this issue don't even realise you can become addicted until, you know, I guess those tragic consequences happen. So, you know, for us is really getting the word out there and that's why we've been doing really strongly the last four years is just putting everyday stories of people who's been affected and actually say, you know, this this is an issue that doesn't discriminate because it's it's something that as soon as people actually become dependent, they they do suffer silently because they're people just like you and me. They're everyday people who are trying to hold a job who just you know, you wouldn't expect, you know, to develop dependency towards these medications. So that lack of awareness and the lack of information is is pretty much, I guess, in, in our organization's opinion, is the biggest gap that needs to be addressed. I'm I'm in two minds about it, B. And the reason why I'm in two minds about it is because the doctor and the pharmacist have gone to study this particular um, mm. part of healthcare for a long time. They're the yeah. experts. And they didn't go to study plumbing and they didn't go to study carpentry and they didn't go to study to be an accountant. So I go to my accountant and I expect that he knows everything that he needs to know about it. Um, If I call a plumber, I don't feel like I've got to go and do any research to find out what the plumber's got to do to fix the problem. Um, If I uh, decide that I want to go see a physiotherapist for my sore elbow, I don't go and research Google um, or Wikipedia to try and work out whether or not my um, physiotherapist is going to be doing something that is safe for me uh, and, and right. So there's a trust there. And this whole doctor-patient relationship should be that the patients are safe. And yeah. so the public kind of needs to be aware that they're not always safe. They've got to ask their GP. They shouldn't have to ask their GP for questions or they shouldn't be having to say to the GP, is what you're providing me safe? It should be within the yeah. GP's best interest to keep their patients safe. So it does concern me a little bit. And I'm, yeah. that's where I'm in two minds about it. No, definitely. You know. Yeah, no, for sure. I think if you were to ask me on my personal view, you know, kind of not representing the organisation because obviously what we do mainly is about the awareness. But, you know, it, in my personal opinion, the duty of care amongst, you know, especially general practitioners to me is almost non-existent um, around this issue because, um, you know, I guess, a, they, they're not providing the right information, but also they, they are kind of falling to that whole idea of, well, I've only got 15 minutes to consult this patient. I'm just going to give them, you know, whatever that's kind of easiest for me to be able to see the next patient on time. So, you know, from, from that point of view, I definitely agree. Like the health professionals, you know, at the point of care, they have such great opportunities, but we've definitely realised it's been so hard. You know, we've, we've done a lot of conferences with GPs and we, we just even trying to make them understand or to promote the conversation that they are alternatives is so hard. You know, it, it's almost like trying to achieve behavioural change among GPs and pharmacists is probably something that I I don't understand how we start and I don't understand, you know, how to approach it sometimes. Yeah, and you do feel for the GPs. Like, I, I know that, you know, you say they're 15 minutes with a GP. There'll be a lot of people out there listening thinking, wow, 15 minutes with a GP, that'd be great. Um, and, you know, part yeah. of the reason for that, I know GPs who are more integrative GPs who, who do spend longer yeah. with their patients and ask these questions, but then they get criticised and hassled by Medicare because they're having longer consultations and, you know, not yeah. seeing enough people and, and you know, 
billing for longer consultations and those sort of things. So there is, I guess, that pressure there from from their side of things, from a political and from an economical point of view as well. But um, what can the individual do? You know, what, what should they be doing about this? Is it a matter of them, once again, doing the research themselves and, and taking this on board? Or should they be, uh, I guess, asking better questions of their healthcare practitioner? Or should they be even going above that and, and lobbying to the government to try and make changes in this sphere? Like, what's the best course of action for an individual who isn't happy about this situation and wants to try and see it change? Yeah, I think with the individual, it's it's definitely asking the right questions to your GPs. And that's kind of the resources that we have on our website as well, because I think what patients generally would realize is if you actually go to the GP saying, I, I, I do have an issue and I don't feel comfortable with these medications or I want to talk about alternatives, more often than not, the GPs would actually kind of provide them with that information. I think where the disconnect has happened is, you know, the patient's not aware of, you know, the side effects of the medications. The GP's assuming that it's working and there's no conversations in that sense to, okay, what is this treatment actually happening? And that's why you see people being on these medications for 10, 15 years before they actually go, oh, you know, I've been dependent for that long. Now I want to have the conversation. So it's kind of, for me, it's really important for, for you to take charge of your medications and actually ask those questions so that the GP actually knows that you're wanting that advice and that help. Yeah, it's, they're, they're great points. And B, I'm just wondering, you know, as we're having this conversation, I kind of think, okay, you're four years down, you're four years into it. Um, obviously, we've now had some legislation change and our government's really good at just dropping legislation in. If they feel like there's a, some kind of benefit or whatever else, they tend to legislate a lot. Um, yeah. However, um, and that could be both good and bad. Um, the challenge, I suppose, is how effective how effective is that legislation at the moment and how do you feel like you're going as an organisation? Do you feel like you're getting there? Do you feel like you're making inroads? What would you need to be able to make bigger inroads like freeways, for example? How, how would we make your message stronger and how do we get it out there to more people? Yeah, I think, again, that's such an amazing question because, you know, four years into what we've done and, you know, look, yes, we are a young organisation but we finally, you know, were able to, I guess, get some time with the federal minister um, and, you know, have that conversation with him around how there definitely needs to be more political will around this issue. I think, you know, the biggest issue here is, you know, we we make everything sound, I guess, really appealing when you talk about mental health or illicit drugs or like cancer and things like that. But for some reason, for some reason, I think when it comes to prescription drugs, it's it's something that's so hidden that politicians, A, they, they know the statistics, but somehow they're not willing, I guess, to at least acknowledge that there is a problem, but also take action to actually ensure that they get behind this important cause. So, you know, yes, we're starting to get inroads. I'm, I'm starting to have really good conversations with, you know, state and federal health ministers, and we always bring a family that's been affected so that they see the story behind what happens. Um, and, and actually, I feel we're getting somewhere. But at the same time, you know, it needs to happen in the next five years. It can't be another 10 years where we're just having conversations and we see the statistics go up. And, and you know, we're already seeing that in America. and you know, even the Trump administration, even though I don't normally speak highly of him, 
you know, he's actually taking action on this issue because it's now of, you know, epidemic proportions. So for us, it's really, you know, our key call to action in Australia is to just really make all state and health, you know, state health ministers and federal minister himself to actually pay, I guess, a bit more attention to what really needs to happen, not from a legislation point of view, but really start looking at preventing this from a very early stage. What, you know, what needs to happen within the healthcare system that people don't even get put on these medications in the first place? B, I think there's a massive elephant in the room here that just has to be talked about, and that's money. You know, the the pharmaceutical industry is a massive, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and we know that that funding, you know, the research shows that that funding does influence what gets shown in the research. We know that that funding uh, has an influence politically because obviously those are major supporters and contributors to different political parties and campaigns, often via, you know, third parties to make it look like it's a little bit uh, different as well. And, and so, you know, it's a hard thing to talk about, I think, because sometimes you start talking about this sort of stuff and people just want to roll their eyes and, and think, well, it's just a conspiracy theory and, you know, it doesn't really happen. But, I mean, we know that it does and the research shows that it does. And so how do we how do we get around that? I mean, it is a massive influence and it, and it creates a massive amount of bias in terms of politically, in terms of the research, in terms of the education of our health practitioners. So how do we work yeah. through what is such an important topic and work through this tricky bias that happens and and still get to a good result at the end. Yes, and I think that's, you know, why I guess as script buyers we value collaboration because we we don't actually want, you know, when we go to pharma companies, we're actually wanting to make them understand that, A, they've actually invested this money to ensure that the medications are hopefully used for the right purposes and obviously kind of hope that, you know, it's it's not kind of going to continue at this stage where the statistics are obvious. And, you know, for us as scriptwise, we want to work with these pharma companies and ensure that ultimately it's about patient safety first. Now, having that conversation, like you say, it's, it's a very tricky one. You know, for example, I've been to pharma companies where, you know, they're, they're kind of willing to work with us but not willing for us to say things like people were dying from these medications and obviously in that situation we are not able to engage with them because the fact of the matter is people are dying from these medications so it's it's definitely I guess probably the hardest question for me to answer because we need the pharma companies to I guess take action in terms of ensuring that these medications don't become overprescribed by the health practitioners but they need to be willing to do that by working with us and understanding the issue and understanding at what point of intervention needs to happen so that it doesn't spiral out of control you know and but do you think that comes from i guess government intervention as well like it seems like when there are issues with these pharmaceutical companies and it does sometimes seem like the bottom line is a big driving factor here um, but it seems like when there are issues then the penalties and the fines that come with that relative to the profits that have been made from the very same product aren't really mm. in proportion. You know, do we need to yeah. hit the bottom line when there are issues in order to get a reaction from companies that sometimes seem to be more focused on the bottom line? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great question because we've definitely been asked by a few families to, well, when is Scriptwise going to start suing pharma companies, you know? And, um, and that's a question that I do, you know, think about a lot because there have been situations, again, in, 
Europe especially, um, to when pharma companies have been sued. And like you said, not necessarily what they've been sued would naturally kind of outweigh the profits and, and you know, that needs to come from the, again, from the federal government here in Australia. There's a lot of legislations, you know, around pharma companies, but at the same time, again, I think that, you know, more political will needs to happen from the federal point of view, especially to how these medications are, you know, I guess promoted, but also just in general of how much pharma companies do influence some of the doctor's education. Um, and I think all these things that needs to happen, you know, if the government were to put their foot down, I think we would probably be having, you know, not be having this conversation in 10 years' time. Mm. Well, hopefully the government will put their foot down. Hopefully Malcolm Turnbull is listening to this podcast. We'll find out. We'll see what's going on. Hey, um, I, I'm aware that, and I found this out recently because I was playing golf with a bloke by the name of Irvine Newton. I'm not sure if you've come across him yet, B, but um, no. he's, um, he's a big wig with the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia. And yeah. his whole purpose is to go and um, educate pharmacists about opioid addiction um, and then also help them to put in place programs or services that are opioid replacement therapy services. And that's his whole thing. That's his whole gig. Um, he said that uh, the biggest issue, the biggest problem is that um, the buck stops with the pharmacist. So the pharmacist has got to often um, be aware of the scripts that people are actually being written. Um, yeah. And then part of the problem is that some of those people who are addicted to these products um, are going to multiple pharmacies to have their scripts filled. And uh, and some pharmacies are linked in, some pharmacies aren't linked in, some doctors actually prescribe a particular drug for one patient or that, that, that patient, and then another doctor prescribes another drug for the same patient and there's a lack of communication, a lack of kind of clarity around what's actually going on. But the buck then stops with the pharmacies or the mm. pharmacists. Could it be that from an education perspective that we've got to start with the pharmacist educating the patients um, or is that unfair to expect that we've got to, you know, absolve all responsibility from GPs and put it onto pharmacists? No, we would definitely agree with that and um, it's something that we've actually shifted our strategy over the next two years to focus a bit more on pharmacists and, and especially I think we shouldn't, I guess, also ignore the importance of hospital pharmacists as well um, because we were starting to realise, you know, when we start mapping the patient's journey, we feel that in a way the pharmacists are the gatekeepers around this issue because they, A, you know, I guess see the end result of what happens when a person becomes dependent but B, you know, they are kind of really well positioned to have that conversation um, with the patient. Um, and we've actually find also that for some reason or another, pharmacists actually are very well aware of this issue and they're actually very proactive. They want to do more and every time we've had forums or educational training and things like that, um, you know, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, 80% of the audience um, in our forums are always pharmacists because they're eager to do more. So I definitely agree that they have that opportunity moving forward to actually, you know, I guess start having that conversations with um, with their patients, especially the ones that they know are being overprescribed. And they also do have that opportunity to pick up the phone and call the GP and say, well, actually, I think this patient, you know, shouldn't be given you know, this much dosage of their medications or anything. Like I, I feel that there's a great opportunity there. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, there's probably got to be more collaboration. There's still some more work to do, but I think you're doing a great job, B, and congratulations on what you've achieved and what you continue to achieve. And I, I wish you all the best and hope that um, your message continues to get out there in a big way to really help reshape this uh, huge problem we've got in Australia at the moment. So thank you so much for joining us on The Wellness Guys, B. It's been really a pleasure for us to have you on our show. Thank you, and thank you for having me and spreading the message as well. It's really important what you guys are doing. Uh, thank you. Now, Thanks, if you want B. to get more information about what B's doing, if you want to support what she's doing, if you've had a loved one who's had an addiction or you've lost a loved one to addiction uh, through opioid abuse, and obviously that's everything from um, you know codeine through to morphine through to heroin, this is all opioids. So if you've had that, get to scriptwise.org.au. Um, and contact them, reach out to B and her team. There's quite a big team there and it's obviously growing. So get onto that, support them and uh, spread the message. Let everyone else know about this podcast. Thanks again, B. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of The Wellness Guy Show. We hope you love the new feel. Remember to continue to interact with us and tell us what you thought of this and other episodes. Please head to facebook.com forward slash thewellnessguys and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. This is the way that we get to share our message with the world. For more information about Bredo and all that he's up to, please head to drbredhill.com.au and to find out more about me, head to damienchristoff.com. Until we meet again, continue to bring wellness into your life and we'll join you next time on The Wellness Guy Show. This year, The Wellness Summit returns. What is the ramifications for you if you continue to not know where your food is coming from and not make a hard stand about what you're consuming? Back in 1992, I didn't know how to cook. In fact, I ate really poorly as many of you know. But I now love it so much that when I go to prepare something, it becomes magical. Don't want you to be stuck in the, the crap that's happening. Know it, yes. Be aware of it, yes. But bring your vibration up so that we can vibrate at a higher level and collectively, we might be able to bring everybody up to make those changes. I love preparing it and I know that everyone who's eating it absolutely loves it. Even the bits that they don't want to eat, they love eating them because I love making them. Does that make sense? Cindy O'Meara and Damien Christoph feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.